Amen. You may be seated this morning. We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in Mark's gospel. So we're towards the end. We only got a few more weeks left. We're in chapter 15. So if you'll turn there, Mark's gospel, chapter 15, we're going to start reading at verse 15, and we're going to go through verse 32. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we study the scriptures verse by verse here. We've been doing a study in Mark's gospel for the last several months, and so we have, after today, two more weeks as we'll finish uh, the gospel of Mark, and then uh, we'll start a study in the book of Romans on August 21st, which is going to be a powerful study, so you want to make sure that you come to that. If you need a Bible, Pastor Jim is... Uh, in the back, he will hand you a Bible if you raise your hand so you can follow along with us and read the text here. So you can mark it at Mark chapter 15, verse uh, 15 um, is where we're going to begin reading through verse 32. While you are turning there, just a little uh, announcement that I wanted to make, and that is I just want to wish Jerry and Sandy Sanders a very happy 35th anniversary. So. You know we love you guys, so happy anniversary, so it's wonderful. So Mark chapter 15, verse 15 is where we're going to begin reading. And Father, this morning we are thankful for Jerry and Sandy and Lord, their anniversary and so many years of of marriage and the example they are to us and more than that, the blessing they are to this fellowship and to this church. And so we're thankful for them and blessed by them. And Lord, we just pray that you continue to bless them um, in the days ahead and uh, what you have for them. And I thank you for their family, and, and Lord, the part that they have been of this church. Um, we are tremendously benefited from it. And Lord, I pray that we are benefited, we know we are, as we study your word this morning, and that you would just bless our hearts as we see um, our Lord dying for us. And Lord, we are familiar with this portion of Scripture, but may it impact our hearts once again in a very real uh, very deep way, Lord, giving us understanding of how blessed we are each and every day. Even though we go through trials and difficulties ourselves, we go through uh, challenges and, and we get anxious, but we have the cross and we have a living hope and, and we are forgiven of sin because of what Jesus Christ did for us in going to Calvary's cross. So may our hearts be stirred once again as we read this account of the crucifixion. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we entered into chapter 15 last time, we saw Jesus being delivered by the chief priests and the scribes to Pontius Pilate, and Pilate would ask him, are you the king of the Jews? And we know that he is more than that. He's the king of all kings. But here is Jesus before the Roman governor, Pilate, and Jesus wasn't defending himself. It would be Isaiah, the prophet, that would write, that he would be like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Pilate had marveled that Jesus had kept silent, but Pilate also knew that it was because of envy the religious leaders had brought Jesus before him. And there are the religious leaders. They are accusing him of many things before Pilate, and Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man. And according to Luke's gospel, it was Pilate that had declared publicly that I find no fault in this man. So after Jesus is sent to Herod and then back to Pilate, as we discussed last week, the Roman governor knew that he had a very sensitive political situation on his hands that could explode at at any time. 
It's, it's Jerusalem here. It's the time of the Passover. There's lots of people that are in the city to celebrate the feast. Uh, there is uh, a lot of activity going on. There's this uh, tension that's taking place. And so he knows that he needs to handle the situation so the whole city doesn't riot or begin to be in an uproar. So Pilate perhaps thinks that he uh, can have Jesus escape death because he knows that he's innocent. And he's thinking, okay, I can release him according to the custom of releasing a prisoner every Passover season. And so there is Jesus standing before the crowd along with Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist and one who rebelled against Rome. The gospel writers are very careful to point out that he was a murderer. And it would be to his surprise that the crowds would cry out, crucify Jesus, we want Barabbas, crucify Jesus, we will not have this man rule over us. And Pilate is asking, he's, he's confused, he's, he's amazed. He's saying, what do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they would cry out even more as the religious leaders stirred up the crowds, crucify him, crucify Jesus, release Barabbas. What shall I do with this man? And you see, you've got to do something with him. You've got to have some sort of opinion. You've got to either believe in him or not believe in him. In other words, you can't be neutral. You've got to take a stand one way or the other. You either believe or you don't believe. Not to receive him is to reject him. Not to confess him is to deny him. And every man and every woman must determine what they are going to do with this man Jesus who is called the King of the Jews. You either confess or you deny. You receive or you reject. You either believe or you don't believe. Pilate was supposed to be the judge, but in a way, he is the one that is being judged. He's asking the people to give him direction for his decision, which was a very unusual move on the part of the judge. But in this case, I think it's very significant. And the reason that I do is because, really, it's the people's choice. It's a personal choice for each man and each woman. Because each one of us must make the decision for ourselves. We cannot leave that decision of the pilot to make for us. You must make the decision for yourself, and you are responsible then for that decision that you make. In a sense, each one of you stand as judge of Jesus Christ. Was he really the Son of God, or was he just a good person, a good teacher? Did he really die for the sins of the world? Did he really rise from the dead, or is it all just a hoax? And each one of us must stand as judge of the facts of history to determine whether or not these things are true. You and I must decide and determine what are you going to do with this man Jesus who is called the Christ, the King of the Jews. And the ironic twist of all this is, is that your decision concerning him has nothing to do with determining his destiny. But in reality, you're determining your destiny. To believe in him is to receive him, to receive eternal life. To reject him, not believe in him as the Son of God, God who came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ and died for the sins of the world and rose from the grave, to not believe in, in those facts is a decision that will lead to eternal damnation. And you are determining your own destiny when you make your decision concerning Jesus Christ. 
So here is Pilate in, in Mark chapter 15, willing to go with the crowd. He's given in to the pressure and all of the screams of the people, the will of the people, which was a hard position for him to be in, one that would haunt him all the days of his life. Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man. He would say to the crowd in verse 14, Why? What evil has he done? He knew what was right to do, Pilate did, but because the crowds were against Jesus, and because, as I mentioned to you last week, that, that Pilate here had made some past mistakes, and he wants to keep his position as, as governor, and if he makes another mistake, if there's another riot there in Jerusalem, he knows that he can lose his position. So he's in a very sensitive situation here at this time, and so he is going to yield to the cries of the people. He is going to give in to what they are saying, the crucified Jesus. And so here is Pilate, and it's interesting because that decision would haunt Pilate for the rest of his life. Matter of fact, the historian Eusebius tells us that not long after this, that Pilate committed suicide. So here in verse 15, where we left off last time, the people crying, crucified Jesus. Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. So Pilate has Jesus scourged, whipped. It was one of the cruelest forms of punishment administered by Rome. In fact, it was such a horrible punishment, it was law that no Roman citizen could be scourged without first having a formal trial. What they would do is they would tie your wrist together, and then they would throw this, this rope as they tied your wrist together uh, over a ring that was on a pole that was above you, and they would throw it up there, and then what they would do is pull on the end of that rope so you're arms and your hands were above your head and you were kind of standing on your tippy toes and your skin would be nice and tight and of course they would take the clothing off of you and the Romans would use this leather whip that was called a cat of nine tails. It was a main strap, leather strap, that would then have several straps fingering out from the end of it and each one of those leather straps would have a piece of metal, something that was sharp at the end of it. And when that cat of nine tails came across your back and across the back of your arms, it would literally tear you to shreds. They would lay this this lash over their back 39 times, they believe, and they would always have a scribe there to record any confession that the prisoner might make or cry out. And then there would be another one that would count how many lashes had been given. He would count one, two, three, and they would, as historians believe, up to 29 lashes. Many times, prisoners would die from this scourging. It was so horrible. It was so terrible. In verse 16, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they struck him on the head with a reed, and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to be to crucify him. So the Praetorium, if you go to Jerusalem, and when we were there a couple months ago, you can go and see some of the remains of this Praetorium uh, that Herod had built. And there is the original pavement that's still preserved there 
where the soldiers would hang out. And actually, in that pavement, you can see where they carved out some games where they would play, you know, uh, board games. They would uh, roll dice as they were waiting for the next person to come along who they would scourge. You can actually stand there on the original pavement and in that area where Jesus would be scourged. And here they are. They all are called together, as we read here. They're going to have a little bit of barrack fun. And they are going to mock Jesus, and they're going to beat him. And they're going to take this man who has been condemned to die, this man who made the claim to be the king of the Jews. They spat on him. They clothed him in purple. They twisted a crown of thorns to put on his head. They would actually take that reed, that rod, and pound that crown on his head. They said, hey, he's a king. He's the king of the Jews, and since he's a king, he needs to have a crown. So they made a crown of thorns for him. Those Judean thorns that you can still see in Jerusalem today, they're about three or four inches long, they're hard as nails, and they're sharp as razors. And when they put that, that crown of thorns and pounded it on his head, those thorns would completely lacerate his scalp. It's interesting when you think about it, where did the thorns come from anyhow? Remember clear back in the book of Genesis? When Adam rebelled against God and God began to pronounce the curse upon man because of sin, and God said, Cursed be the ground, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. Those thorns were the result of God's curse against sin. And here is Jesus ready to bear the curse of sin. And so they crowned him with a crown of thorns. It's the only crown that Jesus received. And so those soldiers there are beginning to hit Jesus. They're pulling out his beard. They're mockingly bowing the knee to him. You can just picture this. You can picture it. You can hear their laughter. Earlier we saw that at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, as Jesus stood before the religious council, that they put a sack over his head and they beat him. They hit him in the face and they said, prophesy, tell us who it is that is hitting you. And then verse 20, they took the purple robe off of him. And when they did that, it probably reopened all of those wounds that he had received from the scourging. Isaiah the prophet wrote in Isaiah chapter 50 concerning Jesus, that I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard i did not hide my face from shame and spitting so they put jesus own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him so after having their fun after beating jesus now they get down to business in verse 21 they had compelled a certain man simon a cyrenian the father of alexander and rufus as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross and they brought him to the place golgotha which is translated place of a skull and so after he was scourged they led him out to be crucified the person who was to be crucified was forced to walk down publicly the streets of jerusalem to that place of execution it is believed that he would be led by two roman soldiers out in front of him one of those soldiers would shout out the crime of the condemned individual it was Rome's way of advertising a crucifixion. And what it would do is it would put fear into the people so that they would be afraid of offending Rome. Jesus, like all crucified victims, would be forced to carry the wood in which he would be hung upon. And they would carry the crossbar of that, that piece of wood that they would be nailed to, which weighed about 100 to 120 pounds. And when the crucified victim uh, carried that crossbar, they would have their hands that would be tied to that crossbar. And with Jesus, now remember, as we've gone through Mark's 
gospel here and, and all the events that are leading up to this point here. We've seen Jesus. He was up all the night before praying in the garden, sweating great drops of blood. He was then taken to Annas to stand before Annas, and he was struck there. Then he would go before Caiaphas and the religious council called the Sanhedrin. And there he was beaten by the religious leaders. He was then presented to Pilate, then to Herod. Herod would mock him, send him back to Pilate, beaten twice. He is scourged. And Jesus, of course, at this point would be very weak physically. He's lost a lot of blood. And he can't carry the cross anymore. And he falls under the weight of his cross. So they compelled Simon a Cyrenian to bear his cross. Now I think this is important. Because Jesus previously said that if you want to be my disciple, then you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after me. And we see very clearly in the Gospels that Jesus never asked us to do something that he didn't do. For example, he said for us to turn the other cheek. And we have seen that he literally turned the other cheek as he was beaten. He says to you and to me, pick up your cross and follow me. You are to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow after me. And as I see that what the cross being on Jesus as he's carrying that cross on his bruised and bloody shoulders it would cause him to fall to that pavement and you see that's the very thing that i believe that jesus is referring to when he asks you and i to take up our cross and to follow after him we often read that and we even receive teachings on it that what jesus is saying that you need to deny yourself pick up your cross and follow after me, that he's saying, come on, you need to suck it up and you need to tough it out. And I don't think that that's what Jesus meant. He's given an illustration here. It means let the cross do to you what it did to Jesus. It caused him to fall down on his face, on his knee, and allow another to bear the cross. And folks, as I've heard so many teachings on that, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm trying, uh, I'm doing this, Lord. I'm trying to be tough. I'm trying to follow after you. I really am. I'm bearing my cross. I'm gutting it out. And I kind of picture Jesus out in front of me saying, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Just suck it up and have a stiff upper lip and all of that stuff. And I think that over the years as walking with the Lord and as of reading the scriptures and looking at this, I've come to realize something. That the cross is meant to drive you to your knees, to give it up, to say, Lord, I can't do it. I need you, Lord. I need your help. I can't do it in my own strength. I need to give it up, Lord. It's not look how brave I am and look how strong I am, but simply to fall on your face before him and say, I can't bear it. And that's why Jesus said, if you come after me, you've got to deny yourself, deny your abilities and your togetherness and your toughness. And you come broken before him. And you're casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And let him help you. And here in our text, Jesus couldn't carry his own cross. And in that large crowd, living in all, or lining the narrow streets of Jerusalem, there was one who was watching this procession go by, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. The scripture indicates to us that he was probably from Africa, northern Africa. No doubt Simon had come to Jerusalem for the, piece of, uh, the feast of Passover. 
he would probably spend a lot of his life savings trying to get to Jerusalem for this particular Passover. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he knows that something's a little bit different. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of excitement when he gets there. And as the week begins to go by, here he lines the street looking to see what's going on. He sees this parade of soldiers and one carrying a cross, and Jesus falls down in front of Simon. And I picture a Roman soldier would lay the flat side of his sword on Simon's shoulder and say, you, you, you carry this man's cross. Because you see, whenever a Roman soldier would do that, when he would lay his spear, the side of his spear on your shoulder, and told you to do something, you had to do it. If you were walking along a path and you came to a Roman soldier who was carrying his gear down the road, he could lay his spear on your shoulder and say, you carry this pack for me for one mile. All the roadways were marked out with milestones by Rome. You can see some of the ancient roads today, and you can see those mile markers. And so you had to carry that load for that soldier for one mile. That was Roman law. And then after a mile, you could kind of drop the load and go your way. Now that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, if they compel you to go one mile, you go two miles. So Simon was summoned to carry Jesus' cross. Now, quick note about Simon. Mark tells us that he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. I think that's significant because what Mark is giving us indication is, is you know Rufus and Alexander, you early disciples. You know Simon, the, the father of, of Rufus and Alexander. We know that Rufus is specifically mentioned in Romans chapter 16 in Paul's greeting to the saints. So here is this one that... Never met Jesus before, I believe, until this time. That is there bearing the cross for Jesus. Oh, he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. There are some that have even suggested, when you go to Acts chapter 13, verse 1, when it talks about Simeon, who was called Niger, in, in indicating that he was from Africa, who was among the group of ordaining elders that sent Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Some have suggested in Acts chapter 13 that Simeon is the same Simon. We don't know for sure. There's a debate about this, but... Here Mark, I believe, is telling us that here is Simon, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know, Rufus, as mentioned there in the book of Romans, he's known to the early Christians. And I believe that when Simon, when he bent down and he looked into the eyes of Jesus, even though he was bloodied and bruised, even though he had been beaten beyond recognition, that he could see the eyes of God in Jesus and the love that was there. And I believe that as he took that cross and went up to that place of execution, he would watch Jesus die for his sins, and it changed his life. They called that place Golgotha, which is interpreted the place of the skull, because right outside of the northern wall of Jerusalem, right outside of the Damascus Gate, there's a, a barren side of a cliff. It was created there by an ancient stone quarry called Solomon's Quarry. And Solomon, when he was building the temple there in First, um, first Kings, we are told that he raised up 80,000 men to make those huge stones that would be used in making the temple. All of the chipping and all of the hammering and all of the chiseling would be done in that quarry. And the quarry would then leave a canyon between the old city wall of Jerusalem and the top of Mount Moriah. And on the north face inside of the canyon was a figure of a skull embedded in the rock. You can still see it today. It's been eroded over 
the last 2,000 years, but you can still make out the skull shape on the side of that small cliff. And it could be very well, probably, why that place was called Golgotha, because of the appearance of that skull on that rock cliff. It is also possible that it got its name, the place of the skull, from the fact that it was perhaps the place where the Romans crucified most of the prisoners, and when they were crucified, they were usually left there on the crosses until they died. And sometimes it took days, as many as three or four days, for a person to die on that cross. They would die of suffocation. It was a very slow process. And the Romans would just leave the victims hanging there until they died. And then they would cut the bodies down and they threw them in a garbage heap nearby and the birds and the dogs would come and feed upon the bodies. So it could be that there were skulls of men who had been crucified that had been left and it's possible that that's the reason why they called it the place of the skull. But one thing that I want us to realize here this morning is that it was an awful, awful place that Jesus died. It smelled of death. It was a garbage heap. People stayed away from it. Crucified people were not treated with respect at all. In verse 23, Jesus now hanging on the cross, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. So Jesus was offered wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but Mark tells us that he would not receive it. Now, it is believed, according to some ancient rabbinical writings, that there was a society of women, kind of a society of mercy, who would make this concoction of wine and myrrh, and they would have an effect of a drug, and, and they would give it to the prisoners as they were going to be crucified so that they wouldn't experience so badly the suffering and the pain of crucifixion. So they would come out when the prisoners were ready to be crucified. They would give them this drink so that the person would kind of sort of just be out of it. They would be in this stupor state of mind. And it would help ease the pain and the suffering. And they offered it to Jesus, but he refused it. Jesus wouldn't take it. He wouldn't take it so he could numb the pain. He would face the agony of the cross with a clear mind. And to me, that's very significant, and I'll tell you why. Because many of his followers in time would end up being crucified or tortured or martyred in some way for their belief in Jesus Christ. We know that when Peter was condemned to die by crucifixion, that Peter requested that he be crucified upside down. And no doubt knowing that many of the disciples would be crucified and stoned and beaten to death and burned at the stake, Jesus refused that drink that he might know and be able to comfort those who later would go through the same sort of pain and torture as, as he did. And he would do it for their sake, knowing what it was that they went through. He knows what you go through. As you go through pain and as you go through difficulties, as you go through suffering, Jesus knows what you go through. And so gathered around the foot of the cross were the soldiers who crucified Jesus, those, those rough, tough Roman soldiers who executed people. They had crucified many, many people. It was a time of trouble and unrest there in Israel. Others were being crucified at this time. These soldiers had a lot of experience in crucifying people, and there is Jesus hanging on the cross. And these seemingly callous soldiers get out a pair of dice and started a crap game at the foot of the cross. Interesting, they were more 
involved and more interested in seeing what they could get and making a fast buck than they were concerned about what was taking place. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. David wrote that, that incredible messianic psalm concerning the sufferings of Jesus in Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. A thousand years before the crucifixion, it was David that wrote that. Jesus would have an inner robe. He would have a sash, that is, and he would tie around his robes like a belt, and he had his turban, and then he had a beautiful outer robe that perhaps were made maybe even by his loving mother. It was an outer coat or robe that was woven without any seams. So they parted his garments. One soldier took the sandals, the other took you know, the inner robe, and, and one the turban. But when it came to that outer coat, it was very valuable. So they cast lots to see who would win the prize. And probably the soldier who would win it would go and sell it. He can make you know, some money selling it. They were more interested, as I mentioned, in making a buck than in the blood of Jesus. Their whole concern was making a fast buck. But those soldiers are an example of the attitude of people even today who are more interested in the buck than they are in the blood. Mark tells us in verse 25 that he was crucified at the third hour, that is 9 o'clock in the morning. Jesus crucified in the morning. In Jesus' own day, crucifixion was known to be such a horrible practice that the Romans would use as a main form of execution for non-Romans. No Roman citizen could be crucified, as I mentioned, unless they had a trial, unless by direct order of Caesar. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. How bad was crucifixion? That's where we get our English word excruciating. From the Roman word out of the cross. The Roman historian Tychicus describes crucifixion a torture fit only for animals. Dr. William Edwards, in writing in the Journal of the American Medical Association, he writes concerning crucifixion this. When they drove that spike through the wrist, it would sever the large medium nerve, which would produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and would result in a claw-like grip in the victim's hand. Along with the excruciating pain, the major effect of crucifixion was to inhibit nor normal breathing, that is, slowly suffocating. The lack of adequate respiration would result in severe muscle cramps, which would hinder breathing even further. To get a good breath, one would have to push up against the feet and flex the elbows, putting the weight of the body on the feet would produce searing pain and flexing of the elbows would twist the hands hanging on the nails. Each effort to get a proper breath would be agonizing, exhausting, and lead to a sooner death. Not uncommonly, insects would light upon or burrow into the person's open wounds or the eyes or the ears or the nose of the helpless dying victim. And birds of prey would tear at these sites. And Dr. Edwards would go on to say, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. There is such more that he wrote, but I'm going to spare you. But the reason that I'm reading this to you, because consider how heinous sin must have been in the sight of God to require such a sacrifice. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. 
So the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. This is what many in the world cry today. They want a crossless Christ. They say Jesus was a great moral teacher. I'm really into his sayings. I really like what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. I try to live by that. What a good example he is. But don't talk to me about the cross. Don't talk to me about he's the only way to heaven. People are still crying that philosophically. Jesus was great. He was a great teacher, a great leader, uh, uh, a, a great example, but a Savior dying for my sins. I don't want to hear it. In verse 31, likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, uh, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross. And we may see and believe, even those who were crucified with him reviled him. So the religious leaders, with gladness, were at the cross mocking Jesus. And the word mock there in verse 31 in the Greek means acting like silly children who love to mock one another. When it says that they wagged their heads in the Eastern culture, even today when you go to the Middle East or you go to Israel, when you see people talking to each other and bargaining on the streets with each other, they're very demonstrating people. Their arms are going and they're talking loud and you know, they're stomping their feet. That's just the way they are. They're not ma mad. They're just very emotional and very dramatic people. And, and all of a sudden all this is going on and you're looking at it and they're talking loud and, and kind of in each other's face and arms are waving and all of this and all of a sudden it stops. And they shake hands and it means they made a deal and one guy gives, you know, hands over some money and the other guy hands over a goat or whatever and everybody's happy. That's just a part of their culture, their temperament, their nature. And so here you can visualize these fellows just full of emotions. They're, they're shaking their heads as they yell these taunts at Jesus. The chief priests were mocking, saying, hey, he saved others himself. He cannot save. Two statements, one of them true, one of them false. It is true that he saved others. They recognized that. People all around them had been saved by Jesus. There were the blind people that could see. There was the lame people that were walking. There was Lazarus that not long before this had been raised from the dead. He did save others. They had to admit that. They could not deny the evidence. He saved others. An interesting confession of his enemies. The false statement is this. Himself he cannot save. That was wrong. Jesus could have saved himself. I believe that, first of all, he could have just appealed to Pilate. Pilate was doing his best to free Jesus. And when you read John's account of his trial before Pilate, John points out even more clearly how anxious Pilate was to set him free. But Jesus kept silent. Jesus wouldn't answer the accusations that they were hurling and accusing him of. And I think that Jesus could have said the right thing to Pilate, and Pilate would have said, you Jews, you go your way, I'm releasing him. We also know that Jesus said to Peter when he pulled out that sword in the garden that Peter put the sword away. Don't you know I can call down 12 legions of angels and deliver me from this wicked world, from these men? He could have saved himself, but he wouldn't save himself because, you see, if he would have saved himself, he would not have saved you and me. And the only way for him to save others is by not saving himself. He could only save others, that is you and me, by giving himself as a sacrifice. And Jesus did something greater than come down from the cross. 
he rose from the grave. And those who were crucified with him reviled him. Most of you know, as we look at the other gospel accounts, that there were two robbers. One on his left, one on his right. At first they both reviled him. Matthew's gospel tells us that they were saying the same thing as the priest. Hey, you save others. If you're the Christ, save us. Descend from the cross and get us off of here that we may see and believe. Now Mark doesn't tell us what happened to one of these men, but Luke does. And Luke tells us that one of those robbers repented of his mocking and abuse of Jesus. He would say to the other robber, don't you fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation. We deserve to be here, but this man has done nothing to deserve this. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, in all this madness, in all this ugliness, before Jesus breathed his last, something very beautiful happened. That man, that robber, that sinner, seeing all that had happened, suddenly realized in the moment of truth that Jesus was indeed king, entering a kingdom in which he had great power and authority. And this one-time robber threw himself at the mercy of Jesus and cried out in a voice that has echoed throughout the centuries, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, before this day is over, you will be with me in paradise. And I think that if we were there and we could see that robber when he heard the words of our Lord saying, you'll be with me in paradise, I think that there would be just, uh, we would hear a sigh and just a look of peace that would be with that man. All of a sudden, when there was no hope whatsoever for that robber, when he throws himself at the mercy and grace of our Lord, all of a sudden, he hears those words, before the sun is set, you'll be with me in paradise. The incredible grace and love of our Lord. And so it's interesting the things that are taking place here at the cross. There are those who are mocking, those who are playing games, those who are understanding. This one is the king of the Jews. We know there's, there's a centurion that was standing watching all of this as we read the gospel accounts. That he also ended up believing, recognizing that truly this man is the Son of God. That he is the King of glory. And all these incredible things taking place. But as we end here this morning, I want to ask all of us, when you come to the cross, what is your attitude? What is your attitude? Could there be perhaps somebody that is here or out in a coffee shop or that says, oh, I don't need the cross, I'm a good person. I don't want to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and in need of a Savior. Or do you say, you know what, I'd like to play games. Oh, the cross, you know, I know that Jesus died for my sins, and, but I want to live for myself. I want to do my own thing. Or do we come to the point where we really look at Jesus dying on the cross for you and for me? You see, he took all of the wrath and the anger of God, all of our penalty that I deserve upon himself, he died in place of me. He died in place of you. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The cross is the very heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think that it's sad that there are many behind pulpits today that use the name of Christianity and they try to give the gospel and they give it without the cross. You can't do that. The message for us is that the price has been paid. He's done the work. Jesus has died for our sins, and he rose again on the third day. And you, and I know many of you, have been like Simon of Cyrene, the one on the cross, the thief, who in simplicity 
received and accepted the work of Jesus on the cross, have become born again, you have peace with God and the peace of God in your life. And it comes as we go to Calvary. He's made provision for our salvation, and that's the message that we're to give to others. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he said, Brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellence of speech or with wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, but I'm determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's not about the Christ consciousness. It's not about a cosmic spirituality. Or I love the teachings and, of Jesus. I think he was a great example. He was a great leader. I, I want to embrace the teachings of Jesus. It isn't about even Jesus is cool. The good news is this, that Jesus Christ died for your sins and my sins, and now salvation is possible. When we go to Calvary, and when we say, Lord, I need forgiveness because I am a sinner, and I need a Savior, you, Lord, because you are the Savior of the world. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And I ask you into my life and receive the provision that you've made for me. Father, I pray that this morning that if there's anyone here that has not made that commitment, that as you're knocking on the door of their heart right now, that they would come to understand very clearly. They would understand what the Word of God declares, that Jesus Christ died for you. He died for your sins. And it's the only hope that we have of eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and coming into right relationship with the Father. It isn't found by trying to be good in your 